uh, electronically somewhere on the on the cloud. Uh, and um, so obviously this is a uh, it's a serious problem that we have to deal with. Uh, and what I thought I would do is, is you know, these are some frequently asked questions that I, I thought I would ask. Uh, these are things that are being asked of infectious disease people all over the country. And, uh, and I'll just go through them very quickly. And there'll be a lot more information coming through from Connecticut Children's. There'll be a, 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 um, a call in line that uh, will be helpful for pediatricians who have questions about this and much more information about how we uh, deploy our or force uh, with, you know, for coronavirus. So first question that, that I think Ken would, would appreciate is, my baby has a pediatrician's appointment next week and the doctor's office is right next to the hospital and is it safe to go? The answer is yes. Yeah, you can still bring your baby to the pediatrician. I don't think we've told anyone that we have to close pediatrician's offices. Sure, should I wear a mask while commuting to work uh, or uh, either on, on some form of public transportation or, or, or anywhere? Uh, the answer is only if you're sick yourself because you know the mask will protect others from probably in this case, most likely influenza, which is really still circulating in large numbers as opposed to coronavirus in Connecticut. Um, otherwise, uh, masks probably don't do anything to protect you, frankly. And, and what you really should be doing is washing your hands frequently. And that's something that we, we, we do recommend all the time. So, um, Ken's patients uh, said, you know, we have uh, planned trips to a year ago to Australia and New Zealand, uh, and, a, uh, and I'm supposed to leave in early April. Uh, should I cancel now and get a partial refund? And the answer, only cancel if the anxiety of going um, would make you not enjoy the trip. And, and that's probably what I would recommend. Now, if you're going to certain areas, if, you, if you're going to Northern Italy, or if you're going to South Korea, I would probably say you're not gonna, you're not gonna be able to go there anyways, because those flights uh, have been mostly canceled. Uh, I'm just back from France. Uh, that would be Lisa probably, came from the Louvre in, in France, and, and have a bad cough, sore, she doesn't have this, so uh, sore throat and a chill, how do I know if it's the flu or coronavirus? Uh, we really can't tell. So, so in that case, you really need to, in, you know, for an adult, you would need to reach out to your primary care doctor about getting tested. Um, and there's a whole issue about testing, which, you know, I, I don't have time to go into right now. A um, little lighthearted here. Should I, should I avoid Corona beer? Uh, no, you, there's, uh, there's, uh, you, 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 you can have Corona beer. Um, so you cannot pass coronavirus with Corona beer. Um, so, okay. Uh, some big concerns, obviously, that we have. Um, and that's concerns. It's a concern that I have is is that our healthcare system at this time doesn't have uh, surge capacity. I mean, if you have been uh, for those the residents that are in the back, or, uh, or those of you who have been taking care of uh, hospitalized patients, you know that we have been in surge for now for the last two three months, primarily with influenza. So we have kids in the playrooms, and so if if we had another set of patients coming in, we, we really wouldn't have that surge capacity within the hospital. We're, we're putting things into place that if we ever got to that point and we're not there, uh, we have the ability to expand our hospital outside our doors. And, and uh, you know, we're, we, we're putting things into place if that ever happened, hopefully that will not happen. Um, the testing issue, it's initially severely limited and that sort of, that, that did not allow us to, to really uh, know how widely spread uh, coronaviruses in the U.S. as we're finding out now in the in Washington state that in fact you know, the virus probably has been circulating for a while and we know that because genetically that the virus that has been isolated in Washington state is genetically very similar to the virus that was isolated in China. So the likelihood is this has been here for a while 
And now testing is becoming much more widely available. Uh, we will be able to do testing here in Connecticut directly with, with a very short turnaround. Um, it, but those, that information is trickling right now. Uh, who is at greater risk of coronavirus? Obviously, immunocompromised individuals. Um, the, when you look at the data from the, from the current uh, outbreak in, in China, uh, the, 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 the highest risk is for individuals over the age of 65 that have some level of, if you're immunocompromised. Uh, if you're healthy, probably the risk is the same. Uh, and uh, the, the average age is about 65 for those that, that, that have, uh, have died. Uh, the uh, children appear to be somewhat protected. Uh, and and no, we don't know exactly why. We'll find out more, but probably because kids are exposed to other strains of coronavirus. And which is the, is the is the virus that is the common cold. So we we haven't seen this uh, really affect children uh, a lot in terms of severe disease. Uh, but the the opposite of that is that children then are as like with any other virus or bacterial infection, they 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 tend to be the ones who spread it to the community. So we'll find out more about that. Um, please tell your patients not to hoard masks and equipment. I mean, that's something that's needed for healthcare providers. Uh, it, it's really not needed, but people are doing it out of, you know, they're scared. And, um, and, and certainly we, we, we still need to have a voice. We, we have to make sure that, you know, we speak freely as pediatricians, as, as infectious disease providers, and, and, and we will continue to do that. Uh, unfortunately, there has been some misinformation from our own government, uh, central government, we, which we, we, you know, hopefully we'll be able to to avoid uh, Dr. Tony Fauci, who's the head of NIAID, so it's a great voice, and uh, no one should be uh, uh, censoring him for speaking. I mean, he's a very knowledgeable individual, and he should be able to speak freely, and, and that's more of an advocacy for all of us uh, that we need to say. So um, what's very positive about all of this is how much people are cooperating throughout the world, uh, and, and it, you know, the, the, where we are now is where we used to be. Is, is far more is far different. Uh, you know, the question comes up: Can we get a vaccine quickly? Uh, Peter Hotez, who's a friend of mine, who's the, the head of the School of Tropical Medicine down at, at Baylor, uh, has shared with us that he, you know, they actually do have a an effective vaccine for SARS-1, which is the original SARS virus. Uh, they they actually developed it uh, with the with the initial epidemic uh, in in the, in the southern part of China in Guangzhou, and they tested it in animals, and it was actually effective in animals. But SARS went away, so there was no pharmaceutical company that was interested in, in, in publicizing or in actually doing the clinical trials. That's now moving forward. They're doing the studies in mice with SARS-2, which is the current virus. Uh, and, and if that works, it will move very quickly to clinical trials. So there actually may be something on the shelf right now that is ready to go. And hopefully the government will, will ease some regulations that will allow us to get the vaccine. Um, so again, a lot of information. Uh, I, I will quote. Um, uh, uh, John Paul II, there's one that's very important, be not afraid, be not afraid. That's really, be vigilant, be not afraid, be logical, don't overreact, uh, and obviously, you know, provide good information, and we'll keep you informed. I'm trying to hope, I'm trying to do a grand rounds over the next couple of weeks that hopefully will be something that will be of interest for, for everyone. And so for, the, for those of you in the audience, if you have other questions, please feel free to reach out to us in Infectious Disease. Uh, for those of you on the web, we will be putting additional information out on coronavirus. So that, that's what I had for you today, Ken. Hopefully that, that, that is helpful to you. So we'll now move on to the, uh, to the Paul Dworkin uh, lecture. Um, this is a picture from Paul. I think it's, this one's already dated for a few years. 
Um, I'm going to have to ask Sheila to send me new pictures uh, for the next time. And uh, again, just to remember what, what Paul uh, used to look like before his chairmanship some time ago. And uh, I love this. I love this picture. He still has the, the same look that he has right now, still smiling and witty and, and, and you know, wanting to tackle the world. And uh, uh, this is who Sheila married many years ago. And uh, so, you know, September 2013, uh, here's Paul. And, uh, and that's when I took on this chair. And he's saying, I don't know what you got into, but and I'm saying, oh, my God, what's going on? Little did I know what I know now. <laughs> and so uh, I'm beginning my, my eighth, eighth year as chair. And, and now in, in March, as initially as an interim chair. And uh, it's, been, uh, uh, it's been quite an experience. And I, I think only chairs understands what chairs go through. Uh, and so I, uh, uh, now I know, and Paul did it for 15 years, so I have even greater respect every year as I go on of what, what he had to go through and the things that, that actually happened. So I, I'm honored to have followed Paul with all his teachings, and, and what's a, a beauty for me is that I'm able to, uh, to still reach out to him and, and learn from him every day for the things that, that he does. And of course, he moved on to do even you know, greater things with the Office for Community Child Health, uh, and, and today's lecture uh, honors his uh, his teachings, uh, his care of patients, his dedication to uh, developmental pediatrics and, and everything that goes on in, in the office for Connecticut Children's and, and throughout the country. So it's, uh, uh, it's a real honor to introduce the eighth uh, Paul Director Lecturer and he will introduce our speaker. Paul, please, round of applause for Paul. Thank you, Juan. I'm surprised as an ID specialist you shook hands, but we're both safe. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. It's great to see all of you. So I so appreciate also your timely update on coronavirus. There's little I can add as a non-ID specialist. I appreciated Ken's question to you about travel to Australia and New Zealand. The closest I can come to that is that Sheila and I and two other couples, including an Australian couple, are, uh, were scheduled to travel to Japan literally in 12 days. And the question came up, what do we do? We had little fear about contracting coronavirus there. I think it's probably safer there than here because they're ramped up. We had some concerns about getting quarantined, not that our government isn't always completely rational in its announcements and decision-making, uh, but we began to see <clears throat> widespread closures of venues in Japan. Museums, events without spectators, schools, the streets are empty in Tokyo and Osaka. So we opted to uh, postpone the trip. So while I cannot give you any guidance on managing coronavirus from an ID standpoint, I'm an expert on recovering expenses <laughs> from airfare, travel arrangements, or travel insurance just email me or call me and I'm glad to share the wisdom. So I'm so pleased to have the honor of this named lectureship. Thank you for that, Juan, and the Department of Pediatrics. And I'm particularly privileged to have the opportunity to use my complete discretion. It's one of the very few examples in which I can exercise that in selecting the speaker. And I've used that to my full advantage, inviting my closest friends and colleagues, literally from around the globe, including Australia, by the way. This year's speaker is much closer to home, and there's a backstory. 
So I, Lisa Honigfeld, who has been a member of our department for decades and has been a leader uh, at the Child Health and Development Institute since 2008, was on my hit list for speakers, but my plan was Lisa would speak next year. And I had already arranged for a speaker for this year, Debbie Chang, who was Senior Vice President for Policy and Prevention at the Nemours Children's Health Services. Uh, actually, they're a four-state children's health system. And Debbie is a national leader on public policy with regard to child health services. And then two things happened. A few weeks ago, I got a call from Debbie begging relief from her assignment because she had accepted the position of president and CEO of the Blue Shield Foundation of, of California, a giant foundation that is deeply embedded in child health services transformation and early childhood development. In fact, we've worked with Blue Shield of California over the years and they wanted her to report for work this week. She is in California as we speak. Secondly, Lisa announced that she was retiring from her position at CHDI this fall. So my plans for 2021 were also disrupted. I called Lisa and begged her to consider moving her talk up by a mere year with about three weeks to go. I'm not even sure it was three weeks. I told her she mastered this topic. I've heard her speak to it. No problem. Easy for me to say. She agreed. I then called Debbie and I said, I'm willing to relieve you of your responsibility for this year as long as you build in to your contract permission to fly east next year and deliver the lecture and do a site visit for us and she agreed. So the good news is we're now good to go for two years, including this morning. So Lisa is well known to many of you, as I say, she's been a member of our department for decades and a leader uh, at the Child Health and Development Institute. But what you don't know is our deep, long-standing professional and personal relationship. So I want to take just a couple of moments to do that. In 1988, I was preparing to take sabbatical leave from Yukon. We were going to Oxford, England, where I was joining the British Joint Working Party on Child Health Surveillance. And the research that I proposed to do was to compare the American and British recommendations for child health supervision and try to derive implications for where those recommendations should go. My access to the British recommendations were easy because I was on the committee that would deliberate those recommendations. I knew that the AAP had drafted new recommendations for the US, but I also knew that those recommendations were not yet released. And if any of you are even remotely familiar with the AAP to say that they do due diligence in vetting their recommendations is a massive understatement. It takes years for things to finally be approved through that deep bureaucracy. I needed those recommendations. Somehow I found out that the program director at the AAP 
who was responsible for those recommendations was Lisa Honigfeld, whom I did not know. She did not know me. I contacted Lisa. This was decades before the internet. So I wrote to her and somehow she agreed to send me an embargoed copy of the recommendations. This was the 1980s equivalent of WikiLeaks had it been exposed, but that was tremendously helpful and in fact informed the work that we subsequently did that led to developmental surveillance and screening as being the official policy statement and best practice with regard to early detection of developmental and behavioral problems. So I so appreciate Lisa's lack of compliance with AAP ethics, which uh, benefited children now around the world. So thank you for that. The story doesn't end there. In 1991, the Honigfeld family relocated to Hartford because Steve, Lisa's husband, who is here, uh, accepted a job at Aetna headquarters. Lisa was seeking out pediatric care for her two young children at the time, Philip and Sarah, and asked her pediatrician in Chicago, I believe Peter was at Northwestern at the time, uh, Peter Gorski for recommendations for a Hartford pediatrician. It turned out that Peter and I had trained together, uh, had done our fellowships together in Boston. We had also trained together for the qualifying for the Boston Marathon, by the way, in Boston. And uh, Peter recommended that Lisa seek me out for as her pediatrician. And I did that for several years at UConn and then when I moved over to St. Francis. So I had the privilege of providing care to Lisa's young children. That was 1991. 1992, I hired Lisa as the special projects director for what was then a vibrant Department of Pediatrics at St. Francis. And Lisa made incredibly important contributions to what ultimately became our Help Me Grow model, currently being supported by our Help Me Grow National Center, being replicated in 32 states around the country. That was 1992. Lisa continued in her work at St. Francis until uh, 2000. She outlasted me by a couple of years and then took positions uh, in support of the A.J. Papanikau Center uh, on Developmental Disabilities, which at the time was part of our Yukon Department of Pediatrics and subsequently for the Center for uh, Primary Care and Pro-Health physicians where she led there at the time child health services transformation and child health policy work. In 2008, while I served on the founding board of the Child Health and Development Institute, Lisa was recruited to a leadership position at CHDI, initially as senior associate and subsequently as vice president for health uh, initiatives at CHDI. We continued to work together. And then in 2012, when I had the opportunity to form the Office for Community Child Health, we worked through an arrangement with CHDI, whereby Lisa became our associate director, subsequently senior uh, advisor to OCCH and has had, again, an extraordinary impact on our evolution and uh, on our productivity. Lisa has been a, a critically important state leader 
in child health policy. She has served on influential committees that have advanced the state's medical home initiative that has moved the state's behavioral health partnership forward, that has advanced the state's innovation model, and that has also uh, designed uh, the state's health enhancement communities, value-based payment reform, a myriad of initiatives that have been extraordinarily important. Because of Lisa's engagement, we have literally and figuratively had a seat at the table. She has been our advisor and counsel. She has encouraged our work in transforming child health services while encouraging us to be patient and appreciate the importance of incremental change. She has been the voice of wisdom and impact. We and CHDI will have an extraordinarily difficult challenge in trying to backfill her many accomplishments and her capacity. In the interim, we are committed to taking full advantage as we as she continues uh, to maintain, at least for the short term, her roles and responsibilities. And we are absolutely committed to ensuring that the change that she has initiated uh, will be sustained and endured. So please join me in welcoming this year's speaker, Lisa Honigfeld. So thank you, Paul. Um, very, very nice introduction. And uh, the best thing about that introduction is, as I go through this talk today, I am going to hit on so many of the things that uh, Paul mentioned throughout that introduction. Um, I These are my disclosures. They are on file with the CME office, but I need to add one more. Uh, today is Super Tuesday. So I need to say today that none of my comments going forward have been endorsed by any of the candidates <laughs> and none of my comments have been endorsed by Paul Dworkin. That said, I, uh, anything intelligent I say, you can probably attribute to Paul and everything else is mine, my disclosures. So what I want to do today is I want to take you on a, a different spin and a different look at child health services. Um, this is the time that we can uh, rethink child health services and we can make huge changes in the way we deliver care and we can work towards child health services having a much larger contribution to children's lifelong health and well-being. I am going to talk about how we can get there, what reformed and transformed child health services will look like. And when you think that I'm a dreamer and this is all pie in the sky, I'm gonna show you some real live initiatives here in Connecticut that are helping us get there. So you've all seen some version of this. You've all heard, you've probably, uh, we had Jack Schoenkoff here to do this lecture. He talked about brain development in early years. You've heard it over and over again. What's different about this picture is it's all positive. And this gives us the opportunity to look at how we can change child health services 
to do a better job in those lifelong outcomes. It doesn't talk about toxic stress and cortisol levels and killing brain cells and adverse childhood events. This is not in that diagram. This highlights the opportunities that I think we have in front of us. Um, Horace Mann, did anybody ever hear Horace Mann? Horace Mann is, uh, he was a great equalizer of education. He was secretary of education in the state of Massachusetts. He believed in universal free education for all children. He thought that would uh, make society more equitable. He believed that uh, we were only going to have an educated populace who could read, write, do arithmetic, participate in our democracy if they were educated. And he was committed to public schools at taxpayers' expense to get our population there. And indeed, today, we still have that free public education system. This table is from Deborah Dudek seeing this table. This is from this institution's community health needs assessment. And these are data from our State Department of Education that actually look at the degree to which our schools in Hartford have been able to guarantee that free, equal education and its outcomes to children in Hartford. And it compares children in Hartford to children across the state. And not surprisingly, and very clear, Steve, you've seen this before, very clear, is that children in Hartford, um, their language skills, their math skills, their uh, attendance at school, their graduation rate, their attendance at higher education is um, much lower than um, children throughout the state. I don't know if any of you have ever um, listened to The Land of Steady Habits. John Dankowski does a really nice podcast set of interviews um, for the Connecticut Mirror. Just last week, he had Miguel Cardona, who's the uh, new uh, commissioner for education here in Connecticut. And he asked him about these equity issues and what, what do we need to do to our school in our schools to ensure more equity in outcomes for children. And he had some great things. He said, um, oh, you know, we need to let, uh, we need to not worry about the gum chewing and the fidgeting and understand that all kids are different. And he said other things, other very, he talked about the social determinants of education. He said that we need to make the schools rigorous so that when kids graduate our schools, they are ready to work and they have that work ethic and they understand the rigor of going to work every day and doing that work. Um, John Dankowski said to him, well, what's it gonna take for us to get there? And he said, well, I got there because I had a loving family. Tremendously important, I would never argue. But there's one thing that I think, um, Commissioner Cardona and Horace Mann didn't understand. And that was the importance of brain development in those early years. Because children entering that free educational system here in Hartford and elsewhere in this state and across the country are already behind in kindergarten. Uh, these, are, uh, these data are from the early development instrument that is was uh, administered to by kin to kindergarten teachers answered these questionnaires about every single kid in their classroom in the public schools in Hartford and West Hartford and you can clearly see from this that our children in Hartford 
are, uh, they're much more vulnerable, they're more at risk, and our children in West Hartford are more likely to be on track, but they're still not perfect. Uh, these differences hold up when we look at, break down that information in terms of social skills of kindergartners, emotional skills, physical health, language and communication skills. Um, I am struck here that, in, that across all of these areas, across all of these domains, we rarely reach above 75% of kindergartners being ready to learn when they get to kindergarten. So an interesting um, study, very old, but actually my favorite large longitudinal study is the early childhood longitudinal study. These data are from the kindergarten class of 1998-99, so they're 25 now, in the workforce now. These are the kids who had cognitive delays. Uh, their teachers, their parents, they rated their child as having cognitive delays. What's most interesting about this is only a third of those kids in kindergarten with cognitive delays had only cognitive delays. The great majority of them had some combination. A quarter of them had health, socio-emotional, and cognitive delays. A quarter of them had socio-emotional and cognitive delays, and 16% of them had health and cognitive delays. So what does this tell us? This tells us that while you may have been listening to my education story and thinking, oh, now you want pediatricians to get kids ready for school and take that on. Well, when we look at the reasons children aren't ready for school and why they lag in school, these are things that we can do in pediatric primary care. They actually, these data actually magnify the opportunities in pediatric primary care and in, um, in child health services in general. Uh, pediatric primary care providers have long-term relationships with families. Uh, all children, all children use pediatric primary care. You can't go to camp, to WIC, to um, licensed childcare, whether it's a licensed childcare center or a daycare home. You can't go anywhere unless you've been to the pediatrician ahead of time. So this is universal access and some forced, uh, some forced uh, connection between what we do in child health services and what happens to children in other areas. Research tells us, surveys tell us over and over again that the pediatrician is the parent's first stop for all information, everything from nutritional information to disciplinary information, you are it. So we need to exploit that and we need to use that towards uh, the best outcomes for children. Also, whether you think about it or not, child health providers are well connected to the larger community of services that children and families use. Um, you know, at the very lowest level of connection, um, you've all filled out blue forms for those health forms for school. You filled out the yellow forms, the, uh, the health forms for, uh, for childcare. So at, at, at some level, you are connected to those larger services for, for families and children. And I think, and I'm gonna talk about quite a bit more about this, it behooves us to make those connections stronger and to work on those connections. But that is not to say that health is all. We know that uh, the best quality healthcare will make 10% change, 10% contributes 10% to the lifelong health outcomes of children. Um, we know that social and environmental factors will contribute about 20%, genetic 30%, and behavior 40%. So with all this information, we hit point 
essential, essential point number one for transforming child health services. And that is we need to look at child health services in the context of communities and all the other services that can support families and children. This is not something, this transformation will not be valuable if pediatricians do this alone, but it needs to be done within the larger context of services. I know Paul often uses the term system within the larger system, but I'm really trying very hard not to use that word because we've, got, we've gotten a lot of slack from throwing that around too much. Um, and we don't do that in this country. This is, these are national data and they're not pediatric, but we don't do that in this country. We do not invest in social and community services to the same extent that we invest in health services. This information is from um, really one of my, one of the most influential pieces of, um, pieces of healthcare literature that I have read, and that's Elizabeth Bradley and Lauren Taylor, The Healthcare Paradox, Why We Are Spending More and Getting Less. And what's really clear from this is a couple of things. One, that um, in the United States, we spend a larger percent of our gross domestic product on healthcare than any of these um, industrialized nations. Two, that we spend a smaller percent on social services than any of these nations. And with the exception of Canada, which is equal, we uh, spend a far greater percentage on medical services than what we do on community services. So something that we all need to keep in mind is we push child health providers to be more a part of the community of services that their families, children and families use. So essential for transformation number two, um, we need to look at new outcomes. We need to look at outcomes across sectors. We can no longer just think that everything that we have to make children healthy in the long term, to make children productive in the long term, to ensure their well-being in the long term will happen in our pediatric offices, in our pediatric primary care sites, within our health sector. We need to look across sectors and we need to work collectively. We need to all work towards the same incomes. Um, oftentimes, we have list of quality metrics that um, people say, well, these are indicative of outcomes. These lead to outcomes. Um, that's not always true. And they're often measured in isolation. This is uh, in isolation. And the kinds of outcomes that we're looking for children's ultimate well-being do not happen within one sector. So I want to give a couple examples of that because I think it's really important. Um, don't get me wrong. I think Kimberly's got a look on her face here from the Help Me Grow National Center. I love developmental screening. I wrote the state's application to go to a national meeting in Houston in July to meet with other Medicaid programs to see how they could pay for developmental screening in pediatric primary care. I love developmental screening. I have uh, Maggie, Maggie's in the back. We have done training in just about every practice in this state. Uh, we started it with, um, with the Help Me Grow National Center and we, it wasn't the National Center, then it was Help Me Grow Connecticut, training child health providers to do developmental screening in their practice to do it according to the academy schedule. I monitor the, uh, the performance of developmental screening in pediatric sites every single year. I call our Medicaid program. Can you tell me how many developmental screens are done? How many practices are doing developmental screens? And you can see the results are fantastic. Pediatricians are doing a fabulous job at developmental screening. If you're a pediatrician and you're doing developmental screening, you can clap for yourself right now because you're doing a great job. And this is just since 2015. I have these data back to 2007. 
we've gone from maybe 2,000 children screened, this is only in Medicaid, to uh, screens performed rather, to 71,000. But this is not an outcome. This is not a population health measure. This is a performance measure. It happens within one setting, and it tells us what happens within one setting that we hope contributes to a larger outcome. We don't know that from these data, and we don't know that in general in the state. We don't know how many of these kids are, one, uh, determined to need services, are connected to services, um, are connected to further assessment, are connected to early intervention. We don't know this, but we have signed up for this um, whole hog as a, as, a, um, as a quality measure. By contrast, I want to con you to consider the state's early hearing detection intervention program, the EDI program. Um, this program subscribes to national guidelines supported by the CDC, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the Joint Commission on Infant Hearing that call for hearing screening by one month of age, evaluation for kids, for babies who show concerns from screening by three months of age, and then enrollment in early intervention services for children uh, hearing deficits by six months of age. And this task force that oversees this for the Department of Public Health, which includes pediatricians, includes um, hospital audiology services. This is very hospital as part of that. It includes community audiology services, includes geneticists, and includes um, early intervention providers, meets monthly to look at how our state is doing on that, because that is an, those are outcomes that happen across sectors. No one sector can reach this 136 guideline. And uh, just to look at how it's not perfect, um, we're doing great job screening in hospitals, uh, screening newborn nurseries, that's wonderful. Um, we're actually, I think we're doing a good job getting that information to pediatricians who are ensuring that children get diagnostics, done, get a diagnosis evaluation, followed a concerning screen. We're doing pretty good on that, 83%. And we're probably doing a little bit less on enrollment and early intervention services. There's probably a whole host of reasons for that. But this is better. This is a cross-sector outcome. It is, we still don't know how many kids come to kindergarten with uncorrected hearing. We, don't, we still don't know that. But we, we don't know language skills. Um, but we do know that we, but we are monitoring outside of performance in one sector, across sectors, and that's tremendously important. Um, other states are ahead of us. I talked before uh, quite a bit about school performance, and other states are considering that an outcome, a necessary outcome. They are holding their state health plans, their Medicaid programs accountable to that. For kindergarten readiness, I'm thinking of Oregon for third grade reading. For high school graduation rates, last year, Kelly Kelleher from Nationwide Children's Hospital stood here, gave this very same talk, and uh, he talked about Nationwide's outcome measures that there, and he had high school graduation rates was one of them, and then school absenteeism. Um, beyond that, we look a little in between that, uh, the opportunities to go maybe not all the way to the outcomes, but partway. And we think about Cincinnati Children's Hospital, their All Children Thrive Movement, immunizations. We track that in this state. That happens within one sector. Um, healthy BMI, 
that's a good one because there's a lot we can do in child health services. We have the Starting Children Off Right program out of OCCH that's working on that, but it happens in families also. It is not all performance that we do in child health services. No dental pain, normal corrected vision, normal corrected hearing. I already talked with you about the hearing. So this is a good intermediate way to get there. Um, I also want to highlight one additional, I'm um, going to call it outcome measure, um, and that is the protective factors, which are measurable and they are impactful because they are the factors, and you can see them here, parental resilience, social connections, knowledge of parenting and child development, concrete support in times of need, I think of our Help Me Grow program, social and emotional competence of children. We think of these five protective factors are the things that ensure resilience in children that um, can mitigate that large percent of children not ready for kindergarten because they, uh, they are socio-emotional problems as well as cognitive problems. Um, these, uh, the five protective factors have shown, they are evidence-based, they have been shown to uh, many positive benefits for family, particularly keeping families out of the child welfare system. Um, here in Connecticut, we are lucky to have protective factors training for child health sites from the Office for Community Child Health from the Center for Care Coordination. Uh, we have tested these protective factors and education on them in six pediatric sites, two here in Connecticut, two in Vermont, and two in California. We did this through the Help Me Grow, with the Help Me Grow National Center. Uh, it was a lot of fun and we have the results of that published. So this, this is, I, I think we are geared up here in Connecticut to, to move forward with these protective factors, which should have tremendous um, benefit for our children and families. Um, so let me just review. Essential number one was transforming child health services in the context of their community and all those community services for children and families. Essential number two was uh, rethinking our outcomes, uh, looking at outcomes that are beyond just the performance in child health services, but actually extend to other sectors. And then essential number three is payment reform. This is big now. Everybody's on the payment reform wagon. If we pay, we're gonna pay differently. We're gonna give the incentives differently and we are going to save money and we're gonna have better health outcomes. I, I, I began my career in this field in um, 1983 at the American Academy of Pediatrics evaluating new payment methodologies to primary care pediatrics that um, would help them or would incentivize them to keep kids out of the emergency department. So number one, we're still kind of doing that now, but <laughs> I don't let that get me down. You know, we had it so wrong to start just with the payment methodology. It was so wrong. It was so, we never thought about what other factors are out there that why do families go to the emergency department? What else do we need in place within the system? So families, we never thought about those things, we just repay them differently. And indeed, we, it was not a tremendously, as presently funded demonstration project, it was not tremendously successful. So we need to think about um, a third after we have thought about our child health services in the context of all those other community services. And after we've, we clarified and committed the outcomes we're trying to achieve, we need to think about 
how we paid child health services differently to reach those outcomes, and how that payment works with all the other payment across the other sectors. Uh, that, uh, that, and we have examples of braided and blended funding where we do that here in Connecticut. I'm thinking of Help the Help Me Grow model, which um, uh, brings funding from the State Department of Education, the State uh, the Public the Department of Public Health, the Office of Early Childhood, brings all that funding together for a single point of enter, entry for children who, and care coordination for children who are at risk of developmental delay. Um, because we understood a group of us at the Child Health and Development Institute and the Connecticut Health Foundation understood that if we didn't move this message about pediatrics in the current healthcare reform environment, it would never get there. Um, the, our state innovation model, $45 million that came into the state to reform our healthcare system was looking at, not surprisingly, disease management, chronic care management in the adult population, big savers of money. Um, but we knew that if you, uh, you would always need $45 million to manage diseases and manage chronic care and put those other kind of services for adults who with those uh, conditions and behavioral health conditions in place. We knew we would always need $45 million to do that unless we hit the prevention agenda. And the health promotion and prevention agenda is the bread and butter of pediatrics. So we, for, we pulled together a group of child health providers and we had Medicaid and private insurers. We had our state agencies at the table, had our office for community child health, child health and development institute. We met over a year to think about what it would take, beginning with the outcomes that I described, and those outcomes are actually listed in this report, those school readiness kinds of outcomes, those well-being outcomes, those socio-emotional outcomes. How would we need to transform child health services so that that is what they were working towards with all the community services? And they were also very committed to equity. Uh, child health services are universal, so it's a great opportunity to address equity. Um, some of the recommendations from that report, and you can read it on www.chti.org, some of the recommendations from that report are um, a recognition that child health services are working towards long-term outcomes, and that we, uh, we, we can those today, we need to have faith that that's what going to have in the long term, we need to look at what we might do in the intermediate. We also spend a lot of time on flexible payment. Uh, right now, you get paid when you have an office visit. You pay people to have office visits, they have office visits. But there are so many other ways that child health services can promote children's health and well-being without, outside of office visits. And I'm going to present those in a minute. I, we have those. So there's that. We also thought you know, we have people on all kinds of uh, performance um, contracts where, you know, if they get this, they reach these quality measures, they'll get this much extra, but those come afterwards. And we thought, well, you need money upfront to put some of the infrastructure in place in your practices to do these things. Um, so we, we spent a long time on flexible payment. We also very strongly recommended that we need an all-payer approach. The kinds of practice transformation that this, that this report puts forth cannot be done 
just for Medicaid, just for Aetna Healthy Choice patients, just for Cigna patients, that these are practice-wide transformations available to all patients and uh, need to be, all payers need to be in on this. Um, we also recognize there has to be a public role in this. Um, back to Horace Mann, Our, um, that child health services need to be a public good. We are working towards having a literate society, having a society of uh, children who grow up, who can participate in the workforce, can be part of our military, can participate in our democracy. So that was another recommendation from our report. Um, we brought these recommendations to the state innovation model who was preparing what they call the primary care modernization initiative. And that's where all this payment reform was, uh, was centered at the time. And this is what success looked like. This is, uh, these are the capabilities, the, uh, the, what would be expected under primary care modernization that would have a bundled payment for basic services and then supplemental bundle payments for extra services. This is what it would look like for pediatrics. It was, um, the adult one looks very, very different. It's not focused on promotion and prevention. It is, uh, it is largely focused on disease management. So this is busy. So I wanna just bring up a few highlights from this. Uh, universal home visiting. I was told this is a game changer. Uh, Oregon, Oregon has committed to universal home visiting for all newborns. This does not mean the pediatric practice needs to do it. It means they need to collaborate with community providers. We have home visiting in this state. It's uh, for the most at-risk families and it is uh, not at all connected to pediatric primary care. So some of your patients out there, they're, they have home visitors and they're doing developmental screening too. And they're, uh, they're doing anticipatory guidance and they're doing, and you are not connected with them at all. Um, I wanna just give you one brief story about um, my two favorite people who are pictured here. These are my grandsons, they were born at, uh, Wentworth Douglas Community Hospital in Dover, New Hampshire. If you're born at Wentworth Douglas Community Hospital in Dover, New Hampshire, you get a home visit within a week of leaving the hospital. Um, if you don't want somebody coming to your home, which a lot of families don't, that's okay, but you better come back there for a visit. Uh, what does the home visitor do? The home visitor, oh, hmm, I see some jaundice. I'm gonna talk to your pediatrician about that and they're gonna be expecting you to come in. Oh, the weight loss, it's a little bit more than we expect in newborns. When you go for that jaundice visit, they'll talk to you about breastfeeding. I know they have a lactation consultant in their office and they're gonna, they're gonna work on that with you. What concerns do you have? Well, they, and these are not, they are not an at-risk family, but they had very basic concerns. They were, given the umbilical cord and the circumcision, they're afraid to give the baby a bath, a little Harrison bath. And, uh, Home visitor's like, okay, we can do that. We'll show you how to do that. They didn't know whether or not they should let him cry if he's been fed, changed. And she said, no, no, at this age, you never let them cry. That's how they develop their sense of security in the world, by knowing that you're there when they're uncomfortable. So home visiting is a game changer. And this uh, plan from the Office of Health Strategies does include universal home visiting for newborns. Behavioral health integration. I uh, there, most of most pediatricians tell us and report everywhere that most of what they do is behavioral health. There are um, it, the integration of the two 
is um, probably the most popular strategy for addressing um, uh, addressing mental health problems within pediatric care. And what it involves is bringing a mental health provider on site. Um, I could give you a long talk about all the caveats in that and what we need to look out for with that. And but I don't have time to do that today, but it, it is tremendously important. Shared visits, they've been doing shared visits at Yale primary care forever. Parents of same age children have their visit at the same time. They get the same anticipatory guidance that, you know, those protective factors, the um, social connections, there they are. Learn about child development together, knowledge of child development, another protective factor. They have had excellent outcomes for this. And uh, we, that, that is something that is called for in this. Um, and then co-management, I see Karen sitting right here. Um, co-management allows more care to be provided in the pediatric medical home. It's, uh, it works off of algorithms for specific conditions that are developed by pediatricians and subspecialists. The beauty of co-management is that one, the most important is that families can get more of their care from their primary care provider. Secondly, they use fewer subspecialty visits, which saves money. And by not junking up the subspecialist schedule with all the patients who don't need to be there, there are more appointments for patients who actually need subspecialty services. So these are a few things that are in that um, primary, uh, primary care modernization uh, concept map and things that can change and transform pediatric primary care. So how close are we in Connecticut? Probably you're listening to all this thing, oh, she is so pie in the sky, and this is not gonna happen in my practice time, but we do have several things underway here in Connecticut that are working towards this. Um, I wanna start with the Medicaid program, the person-centered medical home program. Uh, our Medicaid program is paying to, uh, more money for office visits, it's still in fee for service, that piece. They're still paying, they're paying more money for office visits for, to practices that um, attain medical home recognition from the National Committee for Quality Assurance. Um, the, they also expect in reaching those standards from the National Committee on Quality Assurance require the primary care uh, takes on an expanded role, that they do some care coordination and that they, they start working on those behavioral health areas. So this has really worked amazingly well here in Connecticut. More than 60% of the children insured by Medicaid are now receiving their care in an NCQA recognized medical home. Over a third of the pediatric primary care sites in our state are participants in our Medicaid programs, person-centered medical home program. And when we look at the quality metrics, and again, these are quality performance metrics only, uh, we see developmental screening in, um, in these sites has increased 28% and mental health screening has increased 58%. So those are good, that's good performance. Um, we also, Paul mentioned briefly, the health enhancement communities. So health enhancement communities are currently in planning stages. They are funded by uh, the Office of Health Strategy. And the big win for all of us is, and they bring together, they don't provide services, but they bring together all of the services that support health within communities. And the best thing about them is they're committed to two outcomes. They all have to 
obtained two outcomes met. They have measurements for two outcomes that are cross-sector. One is child well-being and the other is healthy weight. The health enhancement community for Hartford is out of the United Way and it is the North Hartford AAA Collaborative. The great thing about that is the child well-being and the early childhood pieces of this work are linked to the Office for Community Child Health and initiatives within and leadership within the Office for Community Child Health are managing and moving forward those, those pieces of work within the North Hartford AAA Collaborative. Um, I think of all the state innovation model work, this one is, this is the, this is a sticky one. This one will stick, this one will go forward. I uh, engaged uh, our Office of Health Strategy as well as our Department of Public Health. So I do have high hopes for the health enhancement community and they get at that, that first essential for transformation that I talked about, which is uh, transforming child health services in the context of all the other services that children and families use. Um, most recently, January 22nd, um, our governor, with the ending of funding, federal funding for our state innovation model, our governor signed executive orders five and six. These are the pieces that will move ahead and will look critically at what we will do in payment reform. And a lot of them, not surprisingly, are about containing costs. We hear about that all the time. Um, but there also will be a close look at how we put, uh, how we put in place alternative payment models um, and what we can do it within Medicaid to achieve more equity. Um, also setting targets for primary care. Seven, in this, this is generous, five to seven to 7.7% 7 .7 of our healthcare dollars go to primary care. In other countries, those other countries that Elizabeth Warren talked about that also put money into social services, they are, their investments in primary care are much greater. They have greater population health outcomes and they do better um, inequality measures. So something, something to watch and something you can be sure that we'll be involved in. So right now you're probably thinking, oh, those are big state things and they never come down to my practice and my, the patients and families that I see never benefit from those. But now I wanna kind of zoom down to what's happening right here at Connecticut Children want to highlight our educating practices maintenance of certification certification and practice quality improvement program great collaboration between chdi occh and connecticut children's we do targeted practice education and i, I know we've been to all your sites i can see you around me. um we've been to your sites with the very targeted uh, practice education and we also have quality improvement activities that are associated with those that allow you in real time to determine whether or not you are making progress in, in improving uh, your service delivery. So they are your performance measures. Um, and we've demonstrated success in several areas. Uh, the uh, maternal depression screening in, um, that we did with the Help Me Grow National Center in, in three sti states, every single practice started and over six months improved their rates of maternal depression screening. So we know that uh, these, are, these, these uh, initiatives work in terms of encouraging practice transformation. I also wanna highlight, watch, if you are here at Connecticut Children's, watch the Care Network. And they are, they've got it in terms of what we can do going forward. 
they not only have recruited practices to be part of a network that better uses the whole continuum of child health services, but they are committed to improving the quality of those primary care practices in all those child health services. Um, they already have value-based payment contracts from commercial insurers and most recently were improved for the person-centered medical home plus program in Medicaid. Um, they bring community supports to practice and I talked about that. Number one, transform child health services in the context of community services. They are bringing community supports to practices. Um, I have been unbelievably impressed at the work uh, they've done with the Association of School-Based Health Centers to pilot test better connections between school-based health centers and pediatricians in some communities. You see the same school-based health centers, pediatricians and communities see the same kids and they know nothing about what one another does and what the network has committed to doing is saying, let's find the contribution that the school-based health centers are making to children's health in our community and let's Let's recognize that contribution and let's put that into our payment models. Um, and then they also will serve as a laboratory for testing innovation. Um, there, are, there are a lot of primary care networks in this state, not a lot, but there are, there are many primary care net networks in this state. Some of them go by the title of um, Accountable Care Organization, ACO, but this one is all pediatric, all child health. What can be done through this network is really and it, it won't happen anywhere else in the state. So we need to watch this. So with that, a couple final thoughts. Um, I hope after listening to all this, you feel that transformation is possible. Um, I know that has support from families, consumers, payers, and providers. And I think that will continue going forward. Our task is to keep that pediatric piece that is uh, that value of health promotion and prevention on that reform agenda. Um, and I hope, I, I mean, I'm, I hope we all do that. And the other thing I encourage you all to do is to read the framework for child health services. There are some on the back table. I co-authored this with my professional best friend, who is today's honoree, Paul Twerkin. Thank you. So I don't know. I have negative three minutes, but you took up a lot yeah, with it, your infectious it was actually, It was actually, I, I blame it on Paul, not, not me. No, no, so. I'm blaming it on you. Okay. Uh, we'll, I, I thought think. I was in the wrong grand round. I thought it was an infectious <laughs> disease grand round. Well, this is transformational. It's all about infectious disease. So <laughs> right. we do have a couple of minutes for questions or comments, please. And thank you for this fantastic round. And you quiet. All right. Email me. So, if, if you don't have any questions yet, you can still find her. She hasn't retired yet, as far as I know, and we're not going not going too far. So, so thank you, Lisa. Thank I really you. appreciate all they've done, and thank you for calling.